For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Verstappen leads the world championship and wins the Monaco Grand Prix. <laughs> yes. Oh, nice race. <laughs> Max Verstappen, you're a Monaco Grand Prix winner. That was masterclass and you're leading the world championship. Well done, mate. Hello and a hugely warm welcome to F1 Nation with me, Natalie Pinkham, you, Damon Hill, and you, Tom Clarkson. I'm now speaking for you. That won't happen for the rest of the podcast, I promise. How are you? I'm sulking because you've all been in Monaco and I've been here in England and it's been raining and it looked lovely. I mean, it was a bit of an atmosphere, wasn't it? People were there. I have to say it was a real shot in the arm for everyone um, in terms of having fans back. What a buzz. The track parade. I mean, I was busy waving back. I mean, no one was waving at me, but I was like, hi, hi, everybody. Just really lapping up every second. Pinks, there's no atmosphere here today. I'm still in Monaco. It is chucking it down with rain. Is it? There's no one on that. You're not jealous now, Damon. You're really not jealous now. Well, you're getting what we've been having. <laughs> it's about time. Imagine if that had been 24 hours earlier. I know. God, we needed it, didn't we? But I mean, this place in the rain isn't quite so sparkly, is it? Do you know, one of the things about the race yesterday is there was no yellow flags. There were no yellow flags. And we're talking Monaco here. And I think, obviously, great driving by all the drivers. But when you don't get any yellow flags and you end up with the fastest Monaco Grand Prix in history then it doesn't make for a great race, does it? No, I mean, and, and all these people keep talking about it being processional. Look, that's nothing new, is it? I mean, we know that about Monaco, but that's kind of not the allure. Uh, I think I stand back in awe. And actually, when I spoke to every driver after the race, they said the concentration levels required just to keep it out of the barriers for 78 laps. I mean, it's... It, it's incredible. And I think, well, obviously, Damon, you can attest to that. I think that's where... We should be heaping our praise. It obviously doesn't make for a great spectacle, but you get that in quali the day before and you get everything else. I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes, doesn't it? I don't care about there being no overtaking in Monaco. I don't come to Monaco Grand Prix thinking, gosh, we need lots of overtaking. It's all about, from a Formula One point of view, what's going on on track. It's all about the challenge of the racetrack. It's not mm. about overtaking. It's about threading the needle. And, exactly. and Can I just say, as someone who had to sit on his sofa... And not had to, but I spent the weekend watching from home. I enjoyed every single second of it. I was a sofa Twitter warrior. So I was watching the comments coming up on Twitter and had to reply. And there was a famous uh, presenter on a famous car show. Uh, it's got the word top and gear in it. And uh, he said, <laughs> it's a bit boring, you know, and it's not a good advert for F1. And I said, no, you're look. it's not a race. It's a meditation. Because actually, when you sit and watch the race and you watch qualifying you are mesmerized i am mesmerized i can't speak for everyone but for me watching 
Monaco, which has got such a long tradition, such a great history. You're used to all the camera angles and they can refer back to that view looking up to the chicane from Tabac or something like that. The history in that, just that little stretch. And then they cut the cutting of the shots from camera to camera around Monaco is not like nowhere else because there's so many blind spots. There are three cameras on the straight, which, as Martin rightly pointed out, is not a straight, it's a curve. So they come out of Anthony Nogues and then they cut to another camera and they cut to another camera and they cut to about a third camera before he gets to the end of the, you know, the start-finish line. And so it's, I find it just mesmerising to watch the cars go around Monaco. I know, and I was wondering if you meant it was meditative. Is that a word? I said it quickly. Just it's a good word. Meditative. Yes, I wonder whether you meant that for the fans or the drivers, because I feel like the drivers just go into this other zone. Talking to Lando afterwards, he said, I don't know what I do. I don't I, I, I can't actually overthink it. It just becomes instinctive. It's almost like an out of body experience. And of course, we refer back to that stunning Senna pole lap in 1990 as a perfect example of exactly that. And Pink's George Russell touched on this before the race. He said, when you're really on it around Monaco, you don't notice the barriers. They disappear. Does that happen, Damon? Did you ever get into that zen-like state behind the wheel of a car in Monaco? I think you do, but you do notice the barriers when you hit them. <laughs> they are they are there. They're still there, believe me. <laughs> and there were a few kisses yesterday, weren't there? Pierre Gasly was, was reminded, keep it sweet. He got that absolutely perfectly, didn't he? I mean, you could see the tyre wall just gently squidging in a bit, enough <laughs> and not to hit the rim as well. But of course where Charles Leclerc was was taken out and and the whole nature of that race for Ferrari was changed in that moment wasn't it and a lot of controversy about Charles Leclerc whether he did it deliberately what a little oh, I mean, you don't smash your car up you know no. and then that that chain of events did Ferrari No one actually thinks that do they I, I think some people suggested it Oh Charles Leclerc the man on pole has gone into the barriers the red flag has come out with only 18 seconds remaining that is it for qualifying Oh he hit the barrier on the way and then broke his track rod broke the steering arm and straight to the scene of the accident Look, you, you could hear the frustration if you listen back to Max's, Carlos's, Bottas's radio. They were all massively frustrated in the heat at the moment. But I think once the dust had settled slightly, they were on reflection, they all knew that it wasn't deliberate. Surely not. I mean, you don't do something like that deliberately because look what ultimately happened. You don't do it there either because you can actually hurt yourself if you go in at the wrong angle there, can't you? You do as Michael Schumacher did in 2006 or Nico Rosberg in 2016. And But, I mean, you, you don't do that. And I actually, that's the thing I love about these young drivers in Formula One now. I think they're just in it for the right reasons. I don't see Charles Leclerc as that man. I don't think he would do that. No, I agree. I, Tom, I, I think it's fooey, you know, the, the idea that it was done deliberately and um, consequences for that were, for, were very tragic. I mean, Monogasque driver, on pole position for the Monaco Grand Prix and uh, first time since Anthony Nogues. And he's got he's got the tribute to, not Anthony Nogues, uh, Louis Chiron. And he's got the tribute on his helmet and it's all, oh dear, what a shame. And honestly, just, I, I know I keep going on about the trap parade, but every single nook and cranny 
of every building that lined the circuit. There were faces and people hanging out, waving, whooping, cheering. It was such a buzz. They were, and they were all his neighbours. He would just get waving at friends. He was going, oh, yeah, that's my old teacher. And there's my buddy from childhood. And there's my hairdresser. And, you know, like he knew everybody. And I just thought, God, how cruel for it to be taken from him like that. Did you get any inkling from him, anything at all? that made you think he was nervous and then actually we haven't quite got this one covered? Well, he said he didn't sleep the night before. He said he was incredibly nervous. And I said, "What are you, are you going to be nervous in the race? You know, presumably having that sort of hanging over you, whether reliability is going to be an issue once you start the race. He goes, no, I'm just not going to think about it when it comes to that. But they had to take the gamble, didn't they? They, they we, we chatted about this. You know, it, it's what you do. Do you, do you take the gearbox penalty and give up what is basically a possible victory you know you're not going to win it from 10th on the grid or whatever the penalty is so you know they had to they had to kind of bite their lip a little bit and what do you think guys do you think it was a gamble worth taking if the if the, if they'd gone to the grid and the car had been fine he could have won the monaco grand prix 100 percent. and we actually had this debate in the sky sports office but i said you've got to take the gamble i mean i, I think back to Daniel Ricciardo's victory in 2018, nursing that car that was 25% down on power. You know, really from, it was very early in the race, wasn't it? And it was, it was that in itself was a skill to bring that car home and defend to Sebastian Vettel. But if you've got the chance, as you say, to uh, to realise a fairy tale and be a monogast driver on pole and bring it home, you've got to take it. And I know hindsight's a wonderful thing, but, you know... I'm a dreamer. We'll never know as well. I disagree. I mean, I think Daniel Ricciardo and his power in, in 28, power is one thing. Mm. Gearbox is something else around Monaco. You're doing 48 gear changes per lap, which is what, 3,700 over the race distance or something like that. And they're changing gear in nanoseconds. It's so much force going through that box. Now, yes, it, they're claiming it was the drive shaft. Max Verstappen actually made a very good point after the race. He was referring back to his crash in FP3 in 2018 and how he uh, he said the guys actually got the car ready for qualifying. They fired it up in the, in, um, in the garage and they noticed a leak on the left-hand side. Although he'd gone in on the right-hand side. Yeah. The okay. actual damage was on the left-hand side. And he said, I had no idea, obviously, what Ferrari have been up to, but I don't think you risk it. I don't think you can risk it at Monaco. I, I, I feel that they should have played the long game and changed everything. But if he's out of the Drivers' Championship anyway, let's be realistic about that. So, so you mean in terms of constructors' points? It's a bit boring though, isn't it? I mean, hey, okay, Damon, you retired from the race in 1996. How gutting was it? What do you mean, how gutting? Is that the sort of question you ask? <laughs> come on. No, it was a little bit... It, no, it was, I, you it, didn't let me finish okay, my Tom, question. But how okay, how gutting is it? Would you rather have not started that race to have not had the disappointment of retiring from the lead? Is it better to have loved and lost or never loved at all? Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Oh, it's so profound. I mean, I, it, is, <laughs> it is, honestly, at least I led the Monaco. I take your point. At least I led the Monaco Grand Prix and I've had a pole position, but I've never won it. I never won it. <laughs> so upsetting. Anyway, but, um, but and we never know as well what would have happened to the drag to the first corner because I think Max would have nipped past the Ferrari anyway. Anyway, he did win the race and now it's he's leading the championship as is Red Bull and the whole constructors team and you know, big turnaround, big turnaround event in the championship. Big turnaround. 
Hindsight never won a war. It's my new favourite expression. Well, you can't argue with it, can you? It could have been great. But this is all so hypothetical because we don't actually know what they discovered, what, how much risk they were taking. I feel they're hiding something a little bit. I think they knew that they were rolling the dice. And I think the moment you think you're rolling the dice around Monaco with a gearbox, with all those gear changes, uh, you don't go there and uh, you, you take the conservative approach. That would be... But I'm boring, clearly. That would be boring, old Clarkson. <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> <laughs> you need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Well, let's talk about the ramifications for the championship because it really has fired a rocket up things. I mean, how exciting for Red Bull and, and, and a masterstroke by them. Um, in terms of strategy, also for Perez. That was thrilling to watch, wasn't it? When you saw him pull away from Verstappen and effectively get the jump on three drivers, Vettel, Gasly and Hamilton. Superb. A faultless day on Sunday for Red Bull. That's all you can say, can't you? And they they had to capitalise on Mercedes' misfortune and, and they did it. And what I loved about Red Bull this weekend is that I felt we saw the old racing team back. I, I think there were a few people wondering if they were a bit rusty and how many of the people are still at the team who were, you know, have got the experience of winning championships. When did they last do it? 2013. Whereas I thought they were absolutely pin sharp all weekend in Monaco. They were struggling on Thursday. They made the right changes, came back yeah. on Saturday. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Alex Albon, remember the that guy raced for them last year. He was in, he was there, but he'd been in the, the sim until nine o'clock on the Friday night, flew oh. overnight uh, down to Monaco uh, early Saturday morning. And it just, it was the old Red Bull and I'm excited by that. And I think that must just a little, I would imagine there's a little bit of fear yeah. in Brackley right now because they've got a, that, that team is, is, is a proper racing team again. And they seem to be poaching people, don't they? They seem to be kind of stripping out people from Brackley, from Mercedes. And, and it's, it is a little bit like they're fighting mm. a kind of end game thing here with Mercedes, aren't they, as well? Um, but anyway, they didn't, get, they didn't get their car working, much to the upset of Lewis. I mean, Valtteri didn't do too badly to get it up there. So he got something out of it. But Lewis, something didn't click with Lewis this weekend. No, absolutely. But you're right. Valtteri found something that Lewis didn't and he claims he would have put it on pole. But mind you, Carlos said the same and so did Max. <laughs> yeah. well, every, every, They can't all have No, I it. mean, you know, it is a last lap thing, Monaco. You know, the a last lap of qualifying is, mm. is there's so much rubber goes down. It just gets so grippy that you just need to be out there and the last guy passes the line almost is on pole position. Unless someone crashes. Unless somebody crashes. And then you don't want to leave it too late. <laughs> no. And that, so... But it didn't happen. Lewis was slightly long in the face this weekend. And when it doesn't go well, mm. he kind of looks a bit embarrassed and, and, and gets, a bit, it gets a bit awkward. And he put a bit of pressure back on the team, didn't he? You know, saying that uh, we need to do a kind of debrief and uh, behind closed doors. But I'll be giving them a rollicking, which is what he said, I think. How am I still behind him, man? Come on. What has just happened, guys? I've just lost two places. And Lewis were under threat of losing position to Perez as well. Sorry about that. 
I asked him about that um, that early pit stop that cost him a couple of places. I said, and you know, how do you reflect on that? And he said, I, you know, it cost you two places. He said, three. Is it three or is it <laughs> Very quick to say it was three. Well, I mean, initially on the radio, he said two. Yeah. So it was two. But then he, uh, oh, I just had Can a little doggy. The dog is whining to go yeah, out for a walk puppy. and I can't take it because I'm doing the podcast. Oh, I mean, you'd have to say it was an uncharacteristic couple of mistakes by Mercedes. I don't, I don't know if you can call the wheel nut problem for Valtteri a mistake. He, in the pen afterwards, said, well, we've got to work out whether it was an issue with the kit or whether it was a human error. How could that have been a human error? Well, I wondered whether the, the guy with the gun had got it set on the wrong direction or not. Because if it's not set on release, you just tighten it up even more and sometimes it can... You know they couldn't get um, it off. But I'm, I'm speaking out turn a little bit because I don't know. I, it, it sounded like they it actually rounded the nut off, not stripped the thread on the, on the wheel. But then they're all, it's all part and parcel of this. It's fit, the nut is part of the wheel. It doesn't come away from the wheel, so they, they stay in place. But Damon, you bang on there. That's what happened. And they, they weren't able to get it off at all. It, it's gone back to Brackley in the back of the truck with that race tyre still on it. They're going to have to splice it off with the machine back at the factory. I mean, can you imagine how he felt in the car? And he's thinking, I've just lost another place. I've just lost another place. And mm. then it's terminal. That's my race over. And that sinking feeling. It's funny, isn't it? Mercedes have one terrible race a year. Last year, Sakir, year before that, was it German Grand Prix? Yeah. Germany. It just yeah. happens. They just, when they drop the ball, they drop it big time. But Tom, everybody does because, you know, this is so difficult to get it right. You know, it, it is high stress, high pressure. And I think that we sometimes pile, I mean, journalists sometimes pile on kind of inquiry into what went wrong and you know give these guys a hard time actually you try it you know it is and i know that's not the right way to look at it but you know they are bound to crack somewhere there's going to be a crack and teams put them under pressure they're under pressure not from just journalists they're under pressure from the competition as well so so ferrari and red bull are pushing them to the limits they're going to make mistakes i mean we've had times when when ferrari have looked ridiculous and red bull have looked ridiculous too so it does happen it's bound to happen it's part of the game of course mm. and their brilliance makes a rod for their own back doesn't it because we notice that the bad days that much more that absolutely and the bad days are compounded when red bull pull the master stroke that they did yeah i think also drivers have days off and i've never been completely convinced that lewis likes monaco and I think Nico Nico referred no. to this as well. Right. It's something about something about Monaco, and we spoke in the pre-Monaco podcast, Tom, didn't we? About you know some mm. drivers take to this track and they go well, they love it. Lando Norris, he loves driving that car. He loved going around Monaco. He did a fantastic job. Got every ounce out of that car. It's brilliant, like like Max did. But Lewis was. It's always looked to me like he's not completely happy in Monaco. And I wonder whether that just then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because people tell him he's not a Monaco specialist. We have to remind ourselves he has still won there three times. To anyone else, that would be a specialist. It's just by his own very high standards, he's not when you compare it to somewhere like Canada. But I do wonder whether you go in and it becomes a bit of a bogey track for you and you think, oh, you know. And, and you know, we talk a lot about building confidence through the weekend. You could tell from the off that things were going well for Lando. Things weren't going well for Daniel. Things were going well for the Ferrari boys until Sunday for Charles and they weren't going well for Lewis you know from the it was just always on the back foot wasn't he 
And he said at one point that he was overdriving the car, which is you sort of never hear him talk about his performance in, in such basic terms. It's, it's a sort of almost like rookie mistake. You think Nikita Mazepin is overdriving the car at the minute, Lewis, not Lewis Hamilton, but, no, yeah. but he does. He does overdrive on the first day. Uh, he nearly always overdoes it. He drives quite raggedy on the first day. So that would be the Thursday. But the, he never got that flow going, I don't think, this weekend and, and managed to hone in on it. I thought it was interesting. He didn't want to have a fight with Max after the race, did he? Having been quite punchy beforehand, saying uh, Max feels he's got something to prove. He then said after the race, I'm not going to get into a war of words with him. So he sort of throttled back quite a lot after the race which i thought was interesting someone tried to kind of stir it up a bit didn't they they'd mentioned something about it sooner or later they'll they'll have a collision or it'll end up in tears or something like that didn't it so i think they got asked questions about mind games but that natalie you you've been watching the whole you know psychological 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 thing with lewis as well quite closely because you interview him and you can get his mood yeah i think that he probably accepts that this was all on them. You know, he can't launch into any kind of war of words with Max after Max has really driven a great race, obviously covering off Valtteri quite aggressively at the start. And then beyond that, really had things under control. Really where Mercedes problems came from were their own doing. So you could definitely tell with Lewis that he was sort of seething about that. And you can't direct that aggression towards anyone else other than internally and try and flush out what the problem was. But someone had poked him, Pinks, hadn't they? They said, oh, Max has just said uh, that it's good to do your talking on the track, Lewis. And he, he didn't volley it back with, with another criticism. He agreed it is always good to do your talking on the track. So the minute you bite to a comment like that, it's a sign of weakness in a way. Yeah. I think Max has definitely kept himself in his little bubble and I think he's not letting anything distract him. I think his focus is quite good. And that, and that's very, it's very easy to get derailed by journalists' questions about whether or not there's, are you upset by some of the insinuations from someone else's comments and stuff. And he's just not going there. I think he's, he's been playing it quite well. You know, it's a little bit dull sometimes because you think, oh, come on, you know, just a bit of a uh, bit of banter. But then, of course, those things escalate. They get out of control. Uh, exactly. And I hate it. I think it does our whole industry a disservice when, when journalists stir and try to poke. And Damon, <laughs> don't look at me like that. I go out of my way not to poke. Uh, we spend most of our time trying to second guess whether or not someone's upset or not and whether or not it's worth asking a question. Yeah, but you don't try and Stir it up between drivers. Oh, he said that. How do you feel about that? Well, I think I think they're probably more mature than we give them credit for sometimes. And I think, uh, but um, <laughs> but Lewis does play. You know, he says he doesn't, but he does play the odd comment every now and then. Um, you know, I remember when Nico and he was sort of talking about how he's from a, from a poor background, not a rich, like a rich kid or something. He lived in Monaco. I mean, what does who was that directed yeah. at exactly? Oh, you know. and and he did up the ante massively before the weekend. There were a few barbed comments in the direction of Max. Uh, I, I felt after the Thursday press briefings and press conference that Lewis had intentionally just 
turned up the wick a bit because he it, this is now getting serious. Okay, well that there's the point, isn't it? Maybe he is slightly rattled, and so he should be. You know, he's ahead in the world championship after this weekend, so um, he's having to resort to different tactics that he hasn't had to tap into for some time. But Mercedes fans don't need to panic. That team will come back. Their, their fundamental problem this weekend was tire warm up in that the front tires not coming in at the same as the rear tires. Go to a, I mean, it may not be brilliant in Baku as well, but go to a conventional racetrack and they'll be bang on it again. We actually really needed Red Bull to do what they did this weekend for the sake of the championship and giving us a, a 23 race battle. You mentioned the front wheels and I suddenly thought of their little device that made their, that gave them toe in that they had banned. They had the DAS, they had that taken away from them. Their little toy got taken away from them. So maybe that would have put them in a much better position in Monaco. Um, but uh, they didn't have it there available. Yeah, good shout. Good shout. Lewis has had the best start to any season he's ever had, I think. Only now is he behind in the championship, which actually is situation normal. It's not a big loss, Monaco. It'll, it's a blip. And um, we're back to situation normal. I think we'll find that in Baku and, and the rest of the season is going to be a pretty tough shout. I think that Red Bull know it. It's going to still be really hard to beat Mercedes in the long run. There was one comment from Toto Wolff on Friday, though, which will give Red Bull a little bit of encouragement. And that is, um, he said, we're not really going to develop this car. We'll do a few little things to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting comment, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, it's like, really? Re yeah, you can win the world championship here. And you're, no, we're going to focus on 2022. Um, he may not be telling the truth, of course, but it's an interesting comment to make all the same, isn't it? I think a lot of brain power and resources have to go on the 2022 car. I don't think it's it's possible for them to fight. on. Well, even that when you're the size of Mercedes with that amount of resource and money. Yeah, even them. Interesting uh, development over the weekend is that Mercedes have pulled out of doing a 2022 Pirelli wet tyre test because they haven't got enough money and Ferrari are going to do it instead for uh, uh, on behalf of Pirelli. But this is budget cap, though. Yeah. And that crash at Imola was boom. Costly. We've got to, We've got to, Yeah. And we've got to yeah. allocate our resources where we think they're most needed. And doing a wet tire test for Pirelli, we don't think is, is the right way to go. But right. so that's an interesting little backstory, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. On the edge as ever, even with money. Should we talk about Aston Martin and a bit of a turnaround in fortune for them? Before the weekend, they were really playing down their chances. Didn't think this was going to be a track they'd perform particularly well at. And it feels like we're seeing a Sebastian Vettel of old, like he's got his mojo back. I mean, that's his first points for the team and 10, 10 solid points coming in in P5. Driver of the day, no less. How impressed were you with him, Damon? I was very impressed. I mean, I, I thought this was a renaissance man. You know, he suddenly found his mojo again and, and he looked like he was enjoying it. He looked like he was uh, attacking uh, and all together with that car for, for once. You know, that, whether that's because Seb likes the kind of track that that car is on and whatever it was, something clicked and he felt confident. He's got his confidence back massively. So that's really encouraging to see that. That lovely move on Gasly that we actually... We actually missed and then we went for the replay and missed again. But I'm told it was brilliant. Oh, it was. It was so uh, such a shame, wasn't it, Tom? I, was, I mean, my heart was in my mouth. We were watching it going up the hill side by side. And I was thinking, this yeah. is not going to work. <laughs> yeah, it's brave, isn't it? That was properly. He, he still wants it. But yeah, it was great to see Seb 
back in good form. But we actually saw the first signs of this recovery, if that's what we call it, in Barcelona two weeks ago. Because remember, he qualified in, in the top 10 and he was really bouncing after qualifying there and continued it here. And interestingly, because ever since Lawrence Stroll took over that team in 2018, the focus has been on... Lance Stroll, if you just all the messaging from the team is really when check when when Checo was there, it was yeah great race by Checo, Mm. and then waxing lyrical about what Lance had done, and and there's definitely been a shift now that Seb's there in that they're very generous about Seb's performance. Uh, They got a world champions performance from him this weekend, and so it's it feels much more of a two car team, if that's the right way of putting it, now with Seb there than it ever did with with Checo. It it was a there's a worrying bit. I mean, I think he's managed to get out of the quagmire just in time, uh, Sebastian. I think that there was a time where it looked like he was sinking into this kind of mire. And I, I can imagine him starting to think, have I just walked into a trap here? It was a stroll trap uh, with a stroll family uh, setting things up for, for Lance. And, you know, it would be easy to think like that. And it would be obviously catastrophic if you started to believe that they were actually, you know, they didn't want you to do well. But he's uh, he's strong enough, I think, to have, to have turned that around. And performances are the way to do it. You know, he's actually delivered some some stronger stronger performances, starting to get to know the car better as well. So head in the right direction. We'll watch that space. It's so funny, isn't it? Because, you know, he left Ferrari and really poorly performing Ferrari last year. And he was really at rock bottom in terms of his own personal performance as well. And he went uh, clearly a faster car in the racing point. And then suddenly they took a massive step back and Ferrari a massive step forward. You just never know in this game whether you're making the right decision with career moves, do you? No, and and that can really press down on on you. You know, you kind of start to think, oh, why do I always get it wrong? Why do do I make the wrong zag when I should have zigged? And Alonso, of course, famously (laughs) has had a career of that, but he's not alone. Um, But uh, looking good uh, and looking much better back at uh, Aston Martin. Of course, I think someone said that's also the highest result they've ever had in the Formula One race. Is that right? Or is that certainly it's the best result they've had as Aston Martin? So yeah. 14 points. Yeah, double points finish um, for the first time this season, for sure. So um, Ferrari, let's talk. Um, we've obviously talked about uh, the homeboy, the home hero. But let's talk about Carlos Sainz, because um, here was a guy who was disappointed not to have put it on pole. He has just clicked with this team hasn't he and p2 around monaco his first podium for the scuderia impressive stuff what do you reckon boys done brilliantly go for it tom tell us about saints your opinion of carlos carlos Sainz. well he's he's one of those guys isn't he when you see him do well it just puts a smile on your face because he's a great guy very likable and Pinks has, I think, been saying this consistently all year, how he really has hit the ground running there. He's got a place in Maranello. Uh, The team loves him. I thought it was wonderful that Charles Leclerc came to the podium to congratulate him after the race as well. Everyone says, oh, where's this Ferrari performance come from? Well, Lando Norris texted Carlos, his old mucker, after Barcelona, having looked through the sector three times and said, I think you're going to win Monaco. And and Carlos got replied and said, no, 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 I think we'll be a bit better there because our engine's very talky. We've got good low speed grip. But I yeah. think they were all genuinely surprised by the extent of the improvement. Mm. And, he, and he did say after the race yesterday, I'm a little bit gutted because, my God, we were good. And 
if all the stars had aligned, I could have won this race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe, maybe as he touched on with us, that was his his best opportunity. You don't know when those chances are going to come around again. And when we look forward to Baku, and I know we'll do that in more detail next week, but it is a very different challenge to Monaco. Just because it's a street circuit doesn't mean that the Ferrari performance will necessarily well, translate. Ferrari's big problem there is that their, their top-end power ain't great. And you've got that and massive that long straight. Long straight. Yeah. And, and what did it, in, when we first went there in 2016, Valtteri Bottas, I think, did a top speed of 378 kph along that straight faster than they go at monza so i think i think they're not going to be as competitive there i think ferrari's next big opportunity is going to come at hungary uh, which is much slower and much more grunty more like a karting track like Monaco. yeah yeah well i've said it before i'll say it again a strong competitive ferrari is just great for our sport how was the um amber fashion thing that you hosted on Thursday night. Amber fashion thing? The Amber Lounge fashion show. That's the one. It's what a thing. That's the one. Well, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a thing, isn't it? Is it like, charity? Oh, it's all for charity. It is a charity fundraiser. So. What's it the is? charity? It's Caldwell Children this year. Caldwell Children, right. which helps um, families of disabled children and help them live more fulfilled lives, give them the resource that they need to, to lead happy, independent lives. So great cause. But you know what? I just love the fact that we were doing something that we've loved for years and haven't been able to do for a year. And it was some semblance of normality. I mean, I can't really call Amalage Fashion Show in Monaco normal because <laughs> it's not. But um, but it was great. It was a signal of intent that we are getting back to the, the fun ways. And, and I'm hoping by Monaco 2022, it's going to be all out partying again. Did you win in that dress? That dress you posted a picture of, which looked like... It looked like a sponge or something like that. Was it? it was all kind of like it was like <laughs> one of those tropical sponges or coral, a coral, Fishing a coral, basically your own reef, a coral reef. <laughs> I didn't win the dress, put it that way. I was I was thinking about legging for the hills because I was wearing about uh, half a million pounds worth of diamonds as well. But uh, security guards were on me within a second of the show ending, reclaiming them. I mean, they literally took the dress off me, the jewels off me, shoes off my feet. I was like. What else do you want? I've got nothing left. I was just standing in a pair of pants. I, I nearly got arrested once in Monaco because I took my shirt off. Uh, I was walking around the track and you can't do that in Monaco. You can wa not walk around topless, oh. even on a hot day. Uh, I was very, I was very young. I was well, very young. Damon, I took my face mask off at one point over the weekend and had someone, <gasps> yeah. Ooh, you don't yeah, want to do that. t shirt 120 euro fine. Yes. But hey, how many Formula One drivers turned up at the... Lounge? So we had Russell looking gorgeous. What was he wearing? Uh, in a... Uh, in a fawn-coloured suit. Uh, Nicholas Latifi was there. Jack Aitken. So a good Williams contingent. Uh, Antonio Giovanazzi looking uber cool. And then we had a, a number of other drivers from other, you know, from Formula E, Mitch Evans. It was, it was, do you know what? It was great fun. It was very different to normal years, but we raised over half a million quid for the Caldwell children. So, half a million yeah, was, pounds. That's amazing. fantastic, isn't it? There's a, there's a picture of me. I, I, I got dressed up on the weekend as well because I went to the uh, Distinguished Gentleman's Ride, oh. which is a motorcycle kind of thing. And they, but everyone wears tweed jackets and looks like chaps, you know, and they wear pipe, smoke pipes and have, they literally do have handlebar moustaches. So that was what I was doing yesterday um, before the race started. You are so eccentric, <laughs> aren't you? I, I could, mean, what a life I you lead. It. Monaco is about eccentricity. It is an eccentric event. I mean, yeah. my God, you know, as an event, I thought it was great. I know there wasn't much overtaking in the race, but 
it's a spectacle. The whole thing is a spectacle and it does Formula One a lot of good and it's been and gone. But first race ever with no yellow flags, apparently. Yeah. A lot of people saying, oh, Monaco needs changing, change the track so people no, can no, overtake. No, 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 no. I, I disagree. Although, as you um, go around Portier and turn into the tunnel, they are actually reclaiming six hectares of land there. So if you were going to change the track, I wonder whether you could create an overtaking opportunity around there. But even with this extra six hectares, do we want to change the track layout? No, no, no right. never. They, they should make it tighter. They've straightened up. I don't like what they've done to Raskas. I like the old Raskas. Um, but I agree. And, and they, they've yeah. eased the swimming pool a little bit more for this year as well. They've eased the swimming pool. Once you do that, it's just not yeah. the same. And I think, uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's for the future. F2 driver Roy Nassani said you get goosebumps when you're on the plane coming into Monaco. There's just something so special about it. And actually, it's quite interesting covering the F2 this weekend because you could see these wide-eyed young drivers saying, wow, this is what they talk about, you know, and actually on the grid itself, we had four drivers who'd never raced at Monaco before, Sonoda, Schumacher, Mazepin and Latifi. And they were exhausted. Oh, Paul Latifi didn't attach his drink tube properly either. So he collapsed out of the car at the end because he didn't have a sip of liquid throughout the race. Also, Latifi had done eight races in GP2 and Formula 2. Schumacher as well, Latifi. Uh, Sonoda is the only one who'd not actually driven. Only one in no yeah. category, exactly. The others, the others, just not in Formula 1. In olden times, when I was watching the race at Monaco in about the 80s, something like that, um, I... Oh, Damon, Damon, can I inter yeah. interrupt you? You know you said last week that you went and watched uh, down by the tunnel yeah i saw someone you know that yeah someone had found the picture of you watching alan prost did you see that I yeah. wow. so it might have been it might have been that year, yeah but I, I i got the privilege of being able to go into the pit lane at the end of the race and saw them go into the collecting area and they would literally the drivers would sit in their cars they wouldn't get out they were absolutely exhausted and they were dripping in sweat now they spring out after winning, winning the race, as David Coulthard pointed out, not even got Carlos Sainz had not even got wet hair. You know, uh, they were they're just a lot fitter. But maybe these cars are a little bit less stressful to drive. I don't know. Good question. I, I, th I think mentally they were all quite drained, based on what they were saying in the pen. But physically, perhaps not as challenged. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. We got Lando Norris's fantastic performance, but on the flip side, we had uh, Danny Ricardo, lackluster Danny Ricardo, especially someone who's a Monaco winner, winner as well. You'd expect him to have had a better weekend. What do you think, guys? Yeah, it's um, an unusual thing when there isn't a very broad smile on that man's face because he loves Monaco, and it, it was a spring in his step after Barcelona because there's clearly a step forward. His best performance for McLaren. But um, you're right, something just isn't quite clicking for him yet. And I think that's the frustration. I, I spoke to him before the race. I don't know if you saw the feature, but he made a really interesting revelation, if you like, that Carlos had come up to him a few weeks ago and said, 
strange, isn't it? I.e. the car. And uh, Daniel laughed saying, yeah, you could have warned me. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? Because I suppose you just assume that you'll come in and adapt very quickly. But Carlos said himself, and again, this makes his transition to Ferrari all the more impressive that whenever he's changed teams within Formula One, it's like going to a completely different category. And who knew that these cars could feel and drive so differently from one another? Was it to you, Pinks, that he said it's more confusing than frustrating? Yes, Exactly yeah. that. And I think that on the one hand, he can take some solace from the fact that actually Lando's performing incredibly well. So the car is good. He just has to unlock its potential and adapt it to himself. He talked about there being a very, very small operating window. And it's just clearly not very suited to his style. But, you know, I said it in the pen and uh, repeat it now form his temporary class as permanent, he'll be fine. This is this is where he now needs to dig deep. And he's got the wherewithal and the character to do exactly that. And I do believe that he will look back on this as, as something of a turning point in his career. I know everyone's saying, oh, well, he's so old compared to Lando. He's only 31. Sure. He's still got a number of years in the sport left. This is a big test for him. And he's got to rise up and grab it with both hands and conquer it. The other thing is that, I mean, McLaren have made an investment in him. So they have, it is in their interest to, to, to find out what it is that they need to unlock with the car to give him what he needs. So, you know, that was that was always originally what the whole idea of having an adjustable car was, that it made, yeah. you made it to the driver. The driver was then given the tool that he could use. It's no good giving a car to someone and saying, you've got to drive that. We can't change it. That's, you know, that's, that's not what they do. The other thing is yeah. you're talking about the war of words, but I mean, I think Lando made some interesting comments saying that Carlos, where Carlos was good, is he can drive a car that's not perfect and that maybe Daniel can't. And I thought that was quite a, an interesting comment to make. And quite barbed to air that as well. Yeah, I think that kind of lays a little bit of pressure back onto Daniel's shoulders if his teammate is suggesting that he's not a kind of driver who can adapt and you need to be able to adapt. I think it's a bit disappointing. Well, I, I, I'm not sure why you make comments like that publicly. Or to have a dig. Yeah, but why? I don't think you need to. Because you're in competition. That's why. And everything comes into play. Yeah, no, but it's come the game. On. It is the game. Guys, how much... Does Daniel need to change what's going on around him? At what point do you start questioning, I don't know, the engineers around him, for example, in that he did say at one point over the weekend, they're sort of trying to teach me to drive the car. And, and if that's true, it's no longer instinctive for him, which is slightly worrying. I'm reminded of the Red Bull to that extent because you look at how Max can, he just clicks with that car and every other second driver has really struggled and said, it's a bloody difficult car to drive. Um, I'm not sure, to your earlier point, Damon, whether the team owe it to him with the investment they've made to try and adapt the car to him. I mean, you know, listen, we're only five races in though. I don't think we should be panicking just yet. Or he should. Yeah, no, it'll, he'll have great races uh, this year. No doubt the car can do it. But I think that what is interesting is the difference between someone like Danny Ricciardo and Max Verstappen or Lando Norris or even Michael Schumacher because these guys came in, they didn't know any different. So when they get given a car, they go, that's the car, I'll drive. The, and, and also Mika Hakkinen, famously for driving a car that wasn't 
right. You know, the great quotes with Mika are, you know, what they'll say to him, uh, how are we going to make the car go faster? And he says, I just drive faster. Oh, that's not, that's not a very good Finnish accent, is it? But, uh, you know, I, 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 oh, quite good. I, I, I forgot on my Finnish accents. But anyway, you know, but um, bring back Mika. Um, but, um, you know, that those guys have got no reference point. Danny Ricardo has got a lot of reference points. OK, well, there's an argument then to not switch teams. Stay in, bed in, grow with the team like Lando is with McLaren. You know, everyone was. Or Lewis, same place for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, and and Max with Red Bull. But it's so interesting, isn't it? Because Lando came in for some criticism for re signing, rushing his signature onto that contract. And yet he wants to grow with the team. You know, they've brought him on. He's good for them. They're good for him. And there is a lot to be said for establishing a long relationship with one team. And, um, I feel, in fairness to Lando, a huge amount of respect to him for really pulling the team in at every single opportunity, whether it's marketing, whether it's next Sunday, MTC, he and I are doing the Indy 500 together. Um, All these little opportunities are constantly reminding himself, the fans and the team that he is theirs and they are his. He's very happy there, isn't he? He's very happy yeah. there, yeah. And, and how important is it? You, you do see drivers, when they move team, taking their engineers with them. Mm, like a football manager. Jack Villeneuve, famously. Yeah, and, and you look at the relationships that Daniel's had with his previous race engineers, Simon Rennie at Red Bull or Carol Luce at Renault last year. You do wonder whether, how long is it? It's, okay, part of the problem is clearly the car but also is how much of it's just communication because he's having to find new new ways of understanding tom stallard is his his race engineer who was with carlos last year and you do things in different ways and did you need to start looking looking at that as well yeah but you know what daniel's like he's not a difficult person to deal with i'd understand if it was i'm not gonna name names (laughs) 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 but you can't imagine daniel pushing back and and making it difficult you know he's all ears he wants to learn he wants to adapt he wants to grow with mclaren and he's committed his future to them so i think we i think it's going to come good okay damon time for everyone's favorite part of the show it's us damon um, can we have a little jingle, by the way? Damon's going to do the jingle. <laughs> you just did it. That was the jingle. <laughs> that it's was a budget jingle. jingle, but it's good. I like it. <laughs> so we've got Rahul from India with this question. Hello, Damon. I was watching the Spanish Grand Prix with my children on television. And when Valtteri held up Lewis, even after justifiably, I think, having been told to not do so, even I cursed out loud, much to the merriment of my kids and to my embarrassment. To his credit, Lewis seldom complains about anything other than his tyres and I do not recall him cursing on the radio unlike other drivers. I want to know from you if A. You were the cursing kind B. What is your opinion about the relative merits of holding it in or letting it all out on air? And do you think his restraint makes Lewis the best ambassador for our sport? Damon! I want him on my team radio. What a voice Rahul has got. How articulate and eloquent as well. 
It's very soothing. Oh, no, uh, Raoul makes some very good, very good points and in a very tactful way because it's a sensitive subject, isn't it? You know, swearing and in front of the kids as well because, of course, this is a huge responsibility that everyone has in broadcasting. We're not allowed to do it, as you know. And uh, we, we like, especially we don't know who we're going to shock. We don't want to do it suddenly. But he's admitted that he's got so passionate about Formula One that he just couldn't hold it in any longer. And he's done it in front of his kids. And, and also, the irony being, he was complaining about it being done on the television by one of the drivers. So that, explain that to your children. <laughs> Natalie, you're a parent, you're, you've got young kids. You know you never, ever swear in front and lose your temper in front of your children because uh, you're setting a bad example. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so we can edit that. Beep out that bit. Oh, look, I'm the worst. I am the worst. My dad, I don't know what happened. He joined the Navy and every other word was F and the worst words came out of his mouth. And uh, I'm, I'm the same every time. I, in fact, I go on sprees of, of swearing, you know, where I just go, let, let it all out, get it out, you know. But, yeah. but of course, the interesting thing is if this is on radio. Those radio broadcasts are not meant to be broadcast. They are taken from by F1 and they 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 take they choose the bits they want to put out so it's their responsibility to put the bleeps in i don't think it's the driver's responsibility to to mind their language when they're talking to their engineers because that's really yeah. it's a private conversation in the heat of the moment as well yeah exactly and you can express it but golden rule generally is keep it to yourself or at least wearing your helmet and keep your visors closed did anyone swear at you damon did you ever come in after a qualifying lap and I can imagine other than George at the yeah, end yeah. of the race or Patrick Head did he ever let rip properly uh, I did get a couple of uh, tear it's te- strips torn off me I think is the way to put it <laughs> But I like that. You know, I prefer people told me how they feel rather than kind of, um, you know, go and tell someone else. I'd rather people come up to you and tell you straight away to your face. You are a... (laughs) So the other part of your question, Raoul, was about the sensitivity to language that Lewis shows. He doesn't generally swear out loud and and rant and stuff. So he's quite quite gentle, I think, uh, with his language, isn't he? So I think he's a good ambassador. I think he's quite thoughtful. Every now and then he has an outburst and a a little bit of a faux pas, but then, uh, like he also says, nobody's perfect. So great ambassador for the sport and also everything he's done for um, racial equality and and, and other matters to do with the environment. You know, he's, he's, he gets stuck in. I think that's, that's good. We want to know where he stands. And he expresses himself through his clothes, didn't he? Did you see the boiler suit on, uh, on racing? Yes. I am slightly envious of his ability to just wear what he likes. I mean, I haven't got that kind of courage. I mean, I'm quite conservative. Shirt and tie. What was the most outrageous thing you ever wore in a Formula One paddock, Damon? Oh, the most outrageous thing I ever wore. Oh, blimey. T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I wore a coral reef one. Yay! <laughs> Thank you very much for those questions. And don't forget, if you would like to put some more questions to us, then send us a voice recording to ask Damon Hill at... I forget it every time. (laughs) Gmail.com. Guys, I have to leave you. I have to stop COVID in its tracks. I've had one jab. I've got to get the other one and they they won't wait for me. I have to go now. Goodbye. Have a lovely time. Nice talking to you. And thanks to all our listeners. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, cruel world. (laughs) Let's hope they get it in the right part of my arm. Right. Off I go. And I, Tom, am off back to bed because I got in at two o'clock this morning and my kids woke me at 5.30 because they were excited and very sweet and wanted to jump into bed with me.
So I'm sneaking off for a power nap now they're at school. It is tiring this Monaco week, isn't it? We're not going to get any sympathy no. from anyone no. when you start a sentence with, it's tiring this Monaco week, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I'm knackered. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go and jump on a big bird back to England. Yeah. And um, Pink's next week. We've got to start thinking about Baku, haven't we? Yes, absolutely. No, it's a great circuit. It's a great place. I'm not actually going to Baku. My next race uh, is Austria. Which Austria? Because we now have to think. Both of, of them. Oh, cool. I'm doing both Austrias. And I'm actually doing Simon's role. So that's Oh, exciting. exciting. That's, yeah, yeah. lead praise. Well, I am meant to be going to Baku, but I've yet to book any flights. And God, getting there is such a nightmare. Do you go through Istanbul? No, it's on the red list. Please don't send me through Istanbul. Okay, well, you can go via Minsk. Minsk. I don't know. Where is Minsk? I only know that because of friends. Phoebe had a boyfriend from Minsk. Right. Uh, And then there are no spaces on it. They lay charters on and all sorts. So I might be doing it from England anyway. But uh, anyway, it's been a good one. It's been a good one. Shall we end the show with the usual lines, Pinks? Yeah. Okay. F1 Nation. Yeah. Is produced. Is produced. By F1. By F1. I don't have to write it down. <laughs> In association. In association with Audio Boom. Okay. Brilliant. We've done it. See you all. Oh, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm tired. A couple of hours after we finished recording the show, news broke that former FIA president Max Mosley has died aged 81. Uh, I'm speaking to you now from Nice Airport. Managed to grab hold of Damon again. Damon, when you think of Max Mosley, what is his legacy? Max has been very, very important in the history of our sport for a number of reasons. He will be known. He really came into power at a time when the sport was in crisis and he'd almost he'd almost just taken over i think from uh jean-marie Balleste, and then Ayrton senna died at imla and something needed to be done the story goes that bernie was in some sort of panic about the situation and i think max took control of it and said right if we are going to survive as a sport we are going to have to clean up our act we cannot have people dying uh, on our tv screens and he was very decisive and he forced through changes against quite a bit of resistance and the long story of that is that formula one has gone on a safety campaign that culminated if you like in the survival of a most unbelievable accident by roman grosjean in in bahrain where the full uh, effect of that way of thinking that, that Max imposed on the sport had came to full fruition. You know, that somebody could survive an accident like that. It'll never be 100% safe, but the work that he did and forced through and insisted upon um, to do with safety, I think, will be his legacy, certainly from our sports point of view. And Damon, winding the clock back to 94, how much contact did he have with you, the drivers, or did he just push through his changes without contacting you? No, he uh, was there to listen and uh, had conversations. I think, you know, he was a politician after all, so he knew that he had to listen to what people were saying and then the driver's voice was very strong. It, it had a, um, a moral imperative because of having lost two drivers. So he knew that that was important, what the drivers were saying, and, and, and got the drivers, I think, largely on board. I mean, there was 
times when we went a bit too far and we had chicanes and stuff that uh, he wasn't so keen on. And I think some of the changes, the regulation changes went too far and particularly relating to track design. But on that side of things, I think his ability to apply his understanding of engineering and the sport and his political acumen and his legal acumen was a massive asset to the sport. Beyond that, he was seen, I think, to be a little bit too close to the commercial side of things in Bernie. Um, I mean, but the two of them worked together to create a healthy business uh, of Formula One. But, you know, any time you don't have separation between the legislature and the and the commercial wing, there's <laughs> always a bit of, uh, you know, there's some questions. I mean, he was naughty. I mean, there's no question. I think he, he enjoyed taking massive liberties. But I, I also know he was he could be quite intimidating. I think, you know, you did not want to make an enemy of, of Max in the sport. And, you know, some people did. And I think the, uh, they, they, they may not have such a, a, a glowing feeling towards Max but it's obviously a sad day that uh, we've heard that he's passed away mm. and there was a, a lot more to him than just the FIA presidency of course he was one of the founders of the March racing car constructors which he ran from 1969 to 77 did you ever race a March car or was that before your time he, he was the M in March yeah um, so uh, I didn't race some March no I don't think I did no I was Lola man so uh, in fact, so we were on the other side. How controversial. <laughs> yeah. um, and no, but, you know, they moved swiftly, didn't they? The, the, those boys were very brilliant. I mean, you know, I think that uh, James Allison was, was worked for March, so did Adrian Newey and Robin Hurd, who um, was, was one of the geniuses. I mean, they're all like Oxbridge, you know, grade A firsts people. You know, they were really bright. Um, maybe a bit too bright for their own good sometimes, but... <laughs> If that's possible. I first came across Max, funnily enough, in 94. And, I mean, he he did like to get stuck into the politics, didn't he? Quite apart from the safety. I remember Schumacher getting, you know, struck off for a couple of races. And then fast forward to Jerez 97 with the controversy between Jacques Villeneuve and Michael Schumacher. The $100 million fine for McLaren in 2007. The list goes on. Yeah. Oh, I, I wish he'd taken Michael Schumacher's points away from him when he did the same thing to me in Adelaide, but uh, never mind. <laughs> uh, we'll never know about that one. Um, he did, He, I think he went with whatever was expedient at the time, I think, a little bit. So um, even-handedness, I don't think, was was something that I would, would accuse him of. In my experience, I was wary of Max. I think that a lot of people were slightly intimidated by him, and I think he wielded power... Uh, he enjoyed the power and I think that he could uh, make or break people in, in the sport. And so on that side of things, the political side of things, he was he was slightly intimidating and a formidable character and, and someone who outside the sport, of course, took on the might of the um, Murdoch organisation and, and won. And, and that is that's the seriousness with which he the level at which he could operate. Yeah. Well, he will be sorely missed. And there is a documentary coming out about him in a couple of months' time. Max Mosley is yeah. complicated. Um, so we look forward to seeing that. Um, we'll, there'll be lots of things that we'd like to have asked him. I was thinking of phoning him the other day, actually, because of the cost cap. You know, I thought, I just wonder what he thinks, because that was his idea. And he never got it through. And now they brought it in. You know, so uh, a number of things that he had had the vision of in advance of uh, them actually happening. Um, him and Bernie were, were a team and um, 
and shape the sport as we have it today.